News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Windsor Terrace, Brooklyn, here with Professor Christina Greer in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Hello. Hi there, Harry. Hey, Chrissy. Later in the episode, we'll be hearing from reporter Amir Kafaji about the lousy treatment New York is giving survivors of the Twin Parks fire. And next week, you should be hearing from executive producer Alex Brooklyn, now living in Paris, about what new perspective the City of Lights is giving her on the city that never sleeps, and from Katie Honan of The City, about her adventures following this very out-and-about mayor around the city, as she's doing right now. Chrissy, you're wearing this uh, incredible shenanigan enthusiast sweatshirt. Love it. And sipping from a uh, Brian Lehrer coffee mug, by the way. <laughs> I didn't even realize that. Uh, uh, we got to get our own swag, Harry. Oh, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. Um, stay tuned, everyone. Um, speaking of shenanigan enthusiasts, so the Adams administration, uh, the mayor himself is out and about and all over. But the administration looks like it's trying to take control of messaging after a tumultuous first two months. The Department of Education just sat, sent out an email telling principals not to talk to the press, but to refer everyone to the central press office, Tweed, and to send celebratory or positive news to a special address, Good news at nyc.schools.gov. <laughs> so the DOE can then post it on Twitter or connect the school with a uh, presumably credulous local media outlet. Meantime, new police commissioner, Kichan Suo, has yet to hold a press conference at One Police Plaza. She has not introduced, as previous commissioners have for decades, the monthly crime numbers to reporters or taken questions about them. So from your perspective, Professor, how is the new administration doing in terms of messaging and in terms of, as Adams likes to promise, in what's a once a big promise and a way to avoid any specific promises, getting stuff done? Yeah. You know, Harry, I kind of feel like Eric Adams is a really good point guard. He seems like he controls the pace. And that was always, you know, a concern I had during the, uh, during the primary, where we might get distracted and we would always find ourselves like on our heels responding to him. And it seems like, one, you know, if I were in his position, I wouldn't let principals talk to the press because then you have mixed messaging. So as a citizen and a resident of New York, I get frustrated with what he's doing. But as an observer of politics and a political scientist, I look at what he's doing and it's like, well, I would do the same thing if I were in the executive office of New York City. He wants to make sure there's one message and that message is coming from him or people who are designated to speak for him. So having lots of principals who obviously are all having different experiences in their various schools and boroughs, right? I saw a report that like 10% of students in Staten Island are vaccinated, but like 90-something percent of students at Stuyvesant, for example, are vaccinated. So principals are having a very different experience as our teachers. So why would you want a few hundred voices, you know, chiming in, saying things are good, things are bad? Because then everything's muddled. It has been, I think, a tumultuous two months, but the press hasn't really ground him down thus far. And I don't know if it's because he's like, hey, listen, I'm loving this job, so whatever you throw at me, like, I'll throw it right back at you, you know? Or if it's um, because there are so many other distractions in the city. I mean, keep in mind, we still are in a global pandemic. And we did have so many tragedies at the very beginning of the year. A lot of that 
attention was deflected in some ways from Eric Adams because people did feel like we had a mayor who cared. He did really well at the funerals, which brings me to your your second point about the police commissioner who did incredibly well at those funerals. I think you said so on the podcast. I mean, many of us were saying, you know, we'd like to see more of her. I mean, clearly she seems pretty, pretty interesting, pretty amazing. I mean, she definitely hit the right tone as the police commissioner for two tragedies at a funeral. But it does seem like she's somewhat undercut. Um, you've got Philip Banks sort of in the in the wings, in the shadows. And she's also not from New York. I mean, she's from Long Island. So I don't know if she has friends in the department. I don't know if people are loyal to her. I don't know if they're loyal to Phil Banks. I don't know if they're loyal to Eric Adams. I don't know if they're loyal to Bernard Adams, Eric Adams' brother, who's there as essentially a set of eyes and ears. And again, if I were Eric Adams, you better believe I'd have my sister if she were in that capacity to serve as my eyes and ears. That's the point. You know, I'm on several boards and like, you know, sometimes I'm on that board to be the eyes and ears of someone who needs me to be in meetings that they can't be in. Like, that's the whole point if you want to get a job done. So strategically, I can't shade Adams, you know, on what he's doing. I think as a resident of New York, I get frustrated because it does seem he's like he's a little Teflon. It does seem like he's not averse to hanging out with unsavory characters. Um, And it definitely seems as though the pace of the city in these conversations, uh, the ball is uncomfortably for me sometimes in his court. I'd like for it to be a little more equal. And I think we'll get there. Um, You know, this honeymoon period won't last for long. But I got to give him credit. I mean, you walked into office and you had six police officers shot in what, five weeks? I do think that the police officer background, sure, you know, obviously helped with like the tone of the city um, and the tone as to how leadership handled it. Do I want, you know, fund the police what Biden and Adams, you know, are clamoring for? No, that is not what I'm asking. But I do think that, you know, you listen to Adams' speeches and he's he's also talking about a holistic approach about money and education, about, you know, what Chancellor Banks is going to do. Seems like he's given Chancellor Banks a lot of shine. We don't have drama like we had in the de Blasio era where it's like, do we have a chancellor or not? Is he going back to Miami or isn't he? Is he in the mariachi band or is he at work? Like we had all these questions about our school chancellors. It's like, we at least seem like we have someone, you know, I heard him on New York One, who was talking about streamlining the process so you don't have so much bureaucratic overhead where principals can actually speak to the chancellor or speak to the superintendent of their borough. So if this were a report card, it really depends on which side you're asking me. As far as like, if I'm, if you're asking me if Eric Adams is doing what's best for Eric Adams, absolutely. And would I do it too if I were mayor? Yep, probably. Um, but as as a resident, I, I do get frustrated because I'd like for him to to share the ball just a touch and ask us certain things. But I mean, that's not his job, right? I mean, he doesn't care necessarily what Chris Greer thinks. He he has a job to do for 9 million people. Speaking of playing his position, Adams was just in Times Square saying, New York is reopened, baby. It's time to celebrate and uh, cheerleading for the, uh, the city and, and for himself and the job he's done already. And of course, he came into office just as this last wave of the pandemic was declining. And he's going to take credit for that decline. Although, although this was something that was already pretty obviously in motion. Um, 
And he has this weird advantage from the pandemic that like past numbers no longer apply. So on education, the regents are optional for a second straight year this year. So there's much less of a baseline to judge students against. And this opens up a lot of space. And as high school admission standards and other things are shifting, for him to avoid any apples to apples comparisons and simultaneously to, to avoid taking ownership of the, the difficulties students are going to encounter that precede him, but are going to happen on his watch and uh, Chancellor Banks's watch because of the learning loss that happened over the last two years. And as schools were remote and disrupted in all these different ways, simultaneously, you have this new baseline, it looks like, for, for crime, where the numbers are really significantly up from 2019, even if they're relatively level now. And Adams has kept hammering home about bail reform, even as uh, Hasty and Andrea Stewart Cousins and Albany have said, we're not going there. This is unacceptable. And even as one of the cases, Adams' poster boy, this uh, drill rapper, teenager, C. Blue, who shot a cop. Right. A judge now says in the Bronx, um, a judge has looked at the case and said the officer who testified about what happened at the shooting. His testimony was incredible and unreliable. It had no value. It does not match up with what's on the video. You know, this this teen, a real name, Cameron Williams, like definitely had a gun. The gun definitely went off. He got shot. And then, then a, a cop was grazed uh, um, uh, in, in the shooting. But the video seems to show the police initiating this con uh, this confrontation, as the judge notes. There was absolutely no reason for these officers to have approached. Uh, none of them even bothered to come up with a halfway legitimate reason for that approach. Um, and yet Adams, literally the day that this judge's decision is coming out, is continuing to insist that he is a poster boy for why we need bail reform, even as it doesn't seem to apply here. So, so Christy, what's happening with all this? And why is he going so, so hard at this issue in a way that doesn't always seem honest? And when the powers that be in Albany seem really disinterested in, in any reform to the reform at this point. Yeah, but I mean, Harry, I'm trying to I'm trying to get into the mindset of Eric Adams, and maybe I'm approaching this the wrong way. But I am trying to understand, you know, I want to back up just a little bit before we even do bail reform, which is, you know, him bringing back solitary confinement when no one asked for it. I mean, that was the conversation before he even doubled down on bail reform. I think, Harry, because whenever crime is high, and as you stated, we're nowhere near like the 80s and the 90s, but it is higher than people had grown accustomed to under sort of late Bloomberg and definitely de Blasio. We had that low. Uh, but we also know that, you know, in many ways in cities, you know, urbanists say it's like you can look at sort of cyclic patterns and we knew a pattern was going to come up. And then you add in a pandemic and heightened unemployment. And now we're seeing, you know, spikes in, in not just petty crime, but also certain types of violent crime. And, and nationally, think, not, not just in New York and not no, just in cities city, that had some bail reform. No, cities across. And so, you know, I was just on a different podcast. Sorry about that. Um, but we were talking about the data. And, you know, they were saying the data in cities that have bail reform and don't have bail reform, they're still seeing spikes. You know, they're seeing spikes in violence. They're seeing spikes in petty crime. They're seeing spikes in unemployment. So all these, all these factors uh, are sort of immune to a bail reform city or not. I think my question is, when we're in a moment where crime is increasing, and we know that crime is increasing in certain neighborhoods, like let's be clear, it's not increasing across the city, but there's that perception that the city is dangerous. So in a lot of neighborhoods that aren't even experiencing any crime, they're the most worried about crime, 
right? Because it's, you know, this fear that the boogeyman is coming. And I think that gun reform is like a red meat issue that covers a lot of folks. Like there are a lot of quiet liberals and, you know, left-leaning moderates who are fine to sort of roll back bail reform if that means they don't have to think about unsafe streets. Um, And then obviously you've got conservatives who didn't want bail reform anyway. So I think, you know, I don't want to give too much credit to Adams, but I do think that he understands the five boroughs better than most. And I think he understands that the the folks who are going to be with him will understand why he wants these rollbacks. And then those who were never with him are never going to be with him. And so I don't think he really worries about them in his decisions. I don't think that he factors in, you know, what are sort of the, the left-leaning folks uh, thinking. So at the same time, they're now unconfirmed reports and all these suggestions that Adams is going to roll back this plan to close Rikers and open these jails in the boroughs that have been unsurprisingly unpopular in the boroughs. So this is a tricky moment in that Adams is the mayor, has put out his first budget proposal, has some real control right now, but it's too soon, I think, to, to fairly judge him on very much and so, so we have, as, as you're saying, this very intelligent rhetoric. And by the way, with, with the crime stuff, the trains have been a real issue. And this isn't like confined to stations. So that's a way in which this circulates across the city and creates worries there. And as you know, there are all these concerns from the business community, such as it is about getting people back to the offices. I, I have to wonder how much longer Adam's honeymoon lasts at this point, uh, you know, I, I think he is. He, he, he's out and about. He's showing up everywhere. He showed up at this East Village deli where teens were really aggressively picking up the people who worked there, like going to the door and like punching people, things like that. It's great that he showed up. And that, that's the sort of accountability I think people actually want in their neighborhoods. They don't need these teens locked up for the next 25 years mm-hmm. for being dipshit and violent teens. And they also need to, to feel comfortable going into the deli you know, picking up milk, uh, uh, using the ATM there, and the people who work there need to be comfortable. But the rhetoric hasn't immediately translated into actions. You also have, lastly, the, uh, the, the this new gun unit that he said was going to be different from the previous gun unit, and he's now revealed the uniform for it, which is an actual uniform. So it doesn't stand out the way uh, an official NYPD uniform does, but like th- th- these guys aren't just dressed, however, jumping out of cars. That's in. He said when he announced this in January, they'd be there by February. It's March now. They're saying a background press probably another couple of weeks. And there's this question of when the rubber's going to hit the road, I think. Chrissy, how much longer does Eric Adams have? Like where where in his honeymoon is he on March 9th? Yeah, that's a great question, Harry. I think there are a few factors. One, I mean, we can't forget that he is a black mayor. So that honeymoon period is going to be truncated no matter what. But if he can use other individuals as foils and or deflections, then his honeymoon period can last a lot longer. I mean, so much of his January grace period was because of the Post's obsession with the new Manhattan district attorney. So instead of having Philip Banks and Eric Adams plastered on the front page of the Post for two weeks, buddy-buddy for years and talking about an unindicted co-conspirator, instead of having his brother on the front page saying, are we about to pay this retired transportation parking lot 
retired police officer in Virginia, $240,000, question mark. Um, instead of that being on the front page of the Post and Daily News and you know whatever it may be, it was the Manhattan DA all day, every day. And so I think that Adam's honeymoon period has been longer than, than normal. And then also, we can't forget, we had eight years. Uh, let me be fair. We had six years of a mayor who was wholly disinterested in being our mayor. So I know that, you know, some of these antics and, you know, maybe journalists and political pundits and political analysts are a little jaded by, you know, him riding a skateboard or, you know, hugging dogs and, you know, heckling the heckler. Some heckler tried to, you know, yell at him the other day. He's like, you need to quit smoking. I mean, you know, like, they're just things where he feels real regular. Um, And I think that a lot of people like that. They see him, they, you know, even though it's a pandemic, you know, some people like the fact that he goes out to nightclubs. He's like, hey, listen, if if I'm supposed to be the biggest champion of New York, I got to know what New York's about. So when people come here and want to spend money, like, you know, he's yelling at tourists when they're like, oh my gosh, the mayor, he's like, spend your money. Like, he seems excited to do this job. Now, I don't know how often he sleeps because, you know, He's a 61-year-old Black man. I need him to, you know, get some rest. Um, but at the same time, I think that's going to carry him just a little bit longer. And I I know that policy matters. But we also have to remember a lot of the people who were screaming about policies, one, many of them didn't even bother to vote. And two, they didn't vote for him. So he's not that pressed about them. Like, you, they're literally chicken little screaming into the wind because— He's like, yeah, you weren't with me beforehand. So like, I don't really rely on you for confidence. I don't rely on you for policy direction. And I'm not really relying on you for re-election. So I'll, you know, you get in where you fit in. Like, I'll listen, but I'm not, you're not leading my agenda. And I think that that is why some people are so apoplectic because they haven't been on this side of the coin in a very long time. Maybe nationally, yes, but not on a local level. Um, because even Bloomberg, when, you know, folks didn't like certain policies, it at least felt like, wink, wink, and I'm using racially coded language, it felt like Bloomberg was on their side. Whereas Eric Adams is, you know, as he's been described, is unapologetically Black, and sort of, he doesn't do the Obama, Cory Booker, well, all, you know, all tides lift all boats. He's very specific about certain policies that will help particular communities, and he has a vision of certain ways that he wants to change things. I disagree many times on on how we we go about that route. But he seems pretty clear. I mean, this is a man who thinks that he is, who has said that he's been like divinely chosen for this moment. You know, he went to Ghana to sort of fortify himself for this moment, for all of the critiques, for when the honeymoon period ends. And, you know, if you know anything about sort of spiritual old school Black folks, like that's a strong, strong energy to combat if someone believes that. You know, and if someone sort of protects themselves with that energy, I know that, you know, I don't want to sound like, you know, hippy dippy <laughs> from the forest, but like as someone who does subscribe to the fact that like I had a, play- a praying Black grandmother, so I am divinely protected in a certain way, like I do subscribe to that. If you subscribe to that the way Eric Adams does, then like he's good. There's kind Eric- of like he will live in his own honeymoon period. Eric Adams has been saying this straight up. He, he likes to uh, cite poems coming right up, Esther 414. Uh, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time 
mm-hmm. as this. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. And it's going to be a... Uh, Interesting to see who he does and doesn't have to answer to going forward. Just after we, we recorded last week, all these LGBTQ leaders met with him at City Hall for over an hour. They were really upset that he'd appointed multiple yes. administration officials, including Fernando Cabrera, who said some really nasty stuff about gay people to high uh, uh, positions in his administration. There's more of this coming. I think Lori Cumbo is next with, with people who, who powerful constituencies are going to be very upset when they get appointed, and he's going to appoint nonetheless. And what stuck out to me was that the end of this meeting, <clears throat> you had all these quotes from, from, from the leaders who were there saying, uh, uh, um, we're going to be watching things very closely going forward. Um, we have to see, and so on. And in effect, Adams is saying, I don't care what these people said in the past. They have constituencies. I'm going to need them. And they're not going to say things like that in my administration. So it doesn't matter what they said before. And he's saying to the LGBTQ community and to others, like, you're just going to have to accept this because you can complain for a week. You can protest outside City Hall. You can get this on the cover of the papers. But I'm committed. Mm-hmm. I'm still going to be the mayor. I'm setting the tone. And any scandal you want to have involving the personalities or past acts of the people I'm bringing in are not relevant. And some of those people have been involved in uh, Medicaid fraud. They've been subjects Mm -hmm. of federal investigations, which, by the way, this was on the front page of the Post, the Phil Bank stuff, when de Blasio was mayor. Right. makes it that much more striking. It isn't now. Um, But it's striking to watch how, how strongly Adams is playing this hand and how politically, at least for now, that seems to be holding up. Um. But you know what, Harry? I mean, this is what's frustrating about those hires. They feel like a slap in the face because it's not like the people he's hired are so unique and so talented where he couldn't find other non-homophobic talented people. Yes. And I understand that there have been some serious and legitimate cries about there is a lack of Latinx leadership on the city level and the state level. And we do need more Latinos in positions of power in this city. Absolutely 1,000%. However... In a city this large, in a state this big, there are so many overqualified Latinos who can fill these positions, especially the three main positions that he is, these, these three homophobes in. But I think there's one, there's one way to look at it. One, Adams has this undying loyalty, right? He's like, I ride, I ride with you, I ride with you, right? And what you said in the past, that's on you. We're just focusing on the future. And you're going to be in my administration and you're not going to do those things because you know it's going to look bad for me and it's just going to cause me a headache and so you're just going to abstain. Whether they can do that or not remains to be seen. But I think that that loyalty may be the Achilles heel of Eric Adams. Because at a certain point in time, birds of a feather, right? At a certain point in time, you are condoning that if you roll with homophobes. Then I'm looking at you like you're a homophobe. Because if everybody you roll with is problematic, you're the one non-problematic person that you roll with? Absolutely not. So the fact that you're comfortable with these individuals, and it's not like, oh, I'm giving them a second chance. It's just, I'm just, I know that they're not going to act that way because they're in these new positions. How? Why? Did they go over some, you know, major transformation? No. And I just think it's like, you know, don't, don't build a Blasio yourself. 
and have all these unforced errors when you don't have to. Like, you had qualified people that you could have chosen for those positions who didn't come with this baggage and who didn't come with really offensive baggage. It's not just like, oh, you know, some sort of money baggage, which is real and that's serious. This is this is offensive to me. And I'm not even a direct member of the LGBTQ plus community, but I don't want homophobes in my government. You know, it's like as someone who cares about <laughs> gay and lesbian folks in this city and trans folks in the city, I don't want them in my leadership. I don't want to say that my city condones this type of behavior from these men who, by the by, are making real-ass money with real-ass pensions. So I'm paying for a noted homophobe? No. When I know, and it's not like he's some astrophysicist and it's one of a kind, right? These are people where it's just like, we could find so many other people who could do this job, so many other Latino people who could do this job, especially if we if he's trying to elevate Latinx folks um, to sort of offset some of the elected official balance that we see in, you know, high levels. Obviously, none of our big three in the city, none of the sort of big three in the state uh, are representative of the Latinx community. So at a certain point in time, I'm looking at you, Erica, I was like, are you a homophobe? Because you don't mind rolling with homophobes. Oh, speaking of stories falling off the front page, I'm into all that, Chrissy, but not going away. Let's jump into this conversation about the uh, Twin Parks fire and how the uh, city is uh, treating or mistreating its survivors. This is Harry Siegel here on Wednesday with Demir Kafaji and Ida B. Wells Fellow for Type Investigations and the author of a new piece that documented a nonprofit news site devoted solely to covering New York City's immigrants and the policies that affect their lives. Uh, the piece is titled pregnant, sick, homeless, and afraid. Bronx fire survivors say the city is not doing enough. You can find that full article at documentedny.com. And in the meantime, Amir, look, this was all over the front pages, but two months later, can you fill us in on the status of the $2.5 billion that New Yorkers raised, including from the likes of Cardi B and Fat Joe, for the survivors of the Twin Parks fire that killed 17 of their neighbors? And uh, what's happening with the uh, with the 161 adults and 57 children, most of them immigrants who ended up in emergency housing after the blaze? Well, thanks for having me on the show. Um, yeah, I like to know what happened with the two point five million dollars that was raised. You know, um, I'm even hearing things that we didn't put in the article that it could have been a lot more money. Um, but as far as we know right now, only about 10 percent of that money has been has been spent on the families. Um, and they've been giving, uh, they gave most of the families gift cards that amounted to about $2,250 um, that were, as far as I know, and from the families I spoke to was not redeemable for cash. So they can only use it to buy food or, or other necessities. So it seems like the city is micromanaging what is getting spent on the families and all the donations that have come in supposedly to support the families, the city has uh, jealously guarded that money. And we can't, we don't have any answers about where, um, how that money is intended to get spent, how that money has been spent, how much exactly has the, uh, is in the fund that the mayor has raised. So we know that at least it's about $2.5 million, but we, we don't know uh, where, it, where it's gone. That's $2.5 million for, for a couple hundred people. So, so that divides pretty rapidly. Uh, let's talk specifically in your story. This covers the uh, the family of uh, Yadira Rodriguez, 
who was nearly seven months pregnant. So just about due now, when the fire destroyed the apartment, she shared with her husband and their two sons, and then ended up reading your story first in a one-bedroom apartment with bed bugs that, that couldn't even hold all their stuff. So they had belongings piled up in the hall, I think. And then locked out of the hotel room she'd expected the uh, the city to pay for that was closer to the hospital where she was delivering and where her son is going to school. Well, that's exactly what happened. Um, she's due any day. She's about to burst, essentially. Um, she has a, a medically complicated pregnancy that she needs constant uh, doctor supervision. That's why being at the hotel that was closer to the hospital was much better. They weren't in a one bedroom apartment. They were in a one bed motel, sleazy motel at that with, you know, there was a lot of seedy things going on. Hookers coming in and out of the lobby. It was one of these hourly hot sheet motels. And that's where the majority of the families ended up in a lot of these kind of motels. Um, a lot of these families have bed bugs. They're uh, crawling all over their sheets. Yadira had to throw out most of her clothes because it was the infestation they had. So they were they were they met a media somebody that said that they were going to mediate on the behalf of the families and the landlord and the city, and they ended up moving them to a nicer hotel that was much more comfortable. It was closer to a hospital. It was more of a suite. There were two bedrooms. There was a kitchen, and that's when the city ended up saying, "We can't afford to pay for this. We need to put you back in these sleazy motels." It doesn't make much sense to me why the city won't just allow them to stay in that hotel where it's more comfortable. Think about it. She's nine months pregnant, has a medically complicated pregnancy, and they have to eat junk food every day. They have to go out and and and, and eat uh, food with lots of salt and lots of starches. She can't have a healthy diet because she has to eat out. This place that she was staying in had a little kitchenette. She can cook for herself. She can feel comfortable without living with things crawling all over her. But her pleas to the cities fell on deaf ears. So when you talk about the city here, we're talking about the uh, Department of Housing, Preservation and Development. We're talking about the uh, Mayor's Fund to Advance New York. Like, what, what, what are you hearing from them in the course of your, your reporting? And are there any other groups that are being more helpful uh, based on your reporting uh, to these families? Oh, most definitely. So the city is saying they're doing everything they can to, to help the families. Um, but on the ground, that's not true. The, the families are confused. You, um, I only spoke to two families for this piece, but the families are essentially confused what's going on. The ones that I spoke to, and I'm also hearing from community groups that other families um, that, are, that weren't as fortunate enough to move from one of those sleazy motels are still struggling to 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 get a control of their lives and they're they're getting a mixed answers there seems to be a lot of political grifters coming around them especially a lot of the local politicians saying that they're going to fight on behalf of their cause but nobody knows who essentially has um the authority to make any particular decisions about what happens next a lot of these families don't have a lot of money they can't just move into another market rate apartment a lot of these apartments were rent controlled apartments they had their whole lives in these apartments and they can't just go like that. The city's offered to send to to move some of these families to a low, affordable housing complex, affordable with quotations that is adjacent or nearby the the building where the fire was. But the 
there's all of the like there's i think about 800 apartments or something like that 600 to 800 apartments only uh, about 63 of those apartments are truly affordable and they're only studio apartments so these families are larger families they can't squeeze into a studio apartment doesn't make much sense but there are people on the ground and this is what makes things hopeful um that are uh really helping the families and really supporting and advocating on their behalf like the gambian youth organization is on the ground um the bronx the south bronx um uh, mutual aid organization is really on the ground helping out and doing all they can to support the families and advocating on, on their behalf um and the families are really taking things into their own hands and and coming out and saying you know what's enough is enough we're not going to allow politicians to speak on our behalf when, when we're on the background, we're going to take the lead. And this is what we're seeing in this story right now. So so the housing here is in this big five building, $1.1 million, uh, excuse me, 1.1 million square foot development in the South Bronx called La Central. It's 992 units. There's a YMCA, skate park, other things there. Out of those 992 units, right, there's 63 uh, affordable studio apartments presently available people can put applications into. I don't believe it's clear uh, when, when people will actually be able to move in to even those 63 units. And, of course, if those are going, they're supposed to be for a mix of formerly homeless individuals with special needs and low-income working New Yorkers. And, and if fire families are moving in with uh, $650 rent, and an annual household income of no more than like $44,000, I think. And I'm pretty sure that's for a family of four or five, mm. right? What, what, like that, and there are less of them available. So it does seem, and, and your reporting gets into some of this, that in the short term right now, these families are, are really in limbo with, 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 with where they're staying in these uh, motels. Uh, the Rodriguez family was at the Roadway Inn, which in classic sleazy motel style, respectfully, is a misspelled R-O-D-E-W-A-Y. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and they don't have a lot of certainty just, just week to week or month to month, right, wh wh where they're going to be living as, uh, as attention has moved on. The city's open-ended. Um, uh, they, they're saying it's open-ended, but it's, it can stop at any time. They haven't given a particular uh, definite time of when they'll stop supporting the families in these motels. But we get the impression that it's it's going to be kind of indefinite. Um, there is president with the families in Jackson Heights, Queens that lost their homes about 11 months ago. They are still currently struggling in the hotels. I got another story about that coming out relatively soon in Curb. Um, but I think the main story here is the city's inability to handle fires. Fires happen so frequently in New York City, and we don't hear about them so often in the news other than a quick flash, right? What happens when, the, when a story like what happened in the Bronx and what happened in Jackson Heights, Queens just last year, it gets a lot of attention, and then the cameras and all the media attention goes away. These people and these families are still struggling in these hotels, and a lot of them are housed in like these sleazy motels with no solution. It's kind of like we care about you for the first few weeks, and then it's after that, it's like, why are you still in these hotels? Why don't you just pick yourself up by your bootstraps and go find someplace else to stay? And the city wants to absolve themselves of these responsibilities. But most of these fires happen in working class immigrant communities. They're the ones that are, are being affected by this. And it's the city's job to do something substantial 
to make sure that these families have long-term term support. The fires were not their fault. They didn't start the fires. They should be able to have, have some sort of insurance policy that this, from the city that states that when a fire happens, we can take care of you. You don't have to worry. We'll make things better. We'll get you back on your feet. Not washing your hands of it after a few weeks when it becomes too inconvenient. So, so this is probably our closing note here, and, and this has a lot to do, I think, with the broader conversation about providing shelter for, for the homeless. And the homeless, of course, are many different groups and often get conflated with, 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 with the apparently street homeless population, which is often quite different. But we're talking, according to your story, 24,000 plus structural fires last year, fatalities up 16%. And when, when, when families are burnt out, right? I, I, they are often, and, and this is, I think, the broader theme, often getting housed in the, the, these hourly motels that make a fortune off this. You know, it's $140 to $320 a night, according to, uh, to, to HPD, and, then, uh, and, and then, then, then get forgotten about. Is there any sign with this new uh, administration in City Hall, new City Council, and, you know, people have been talking about these issues for decades, that, that we're going to end up with a uh, more stable and uh, a, a better set up system, or is, is this just a story you're gonna be able to keep writing over the next months, years, and decades? Well, I hope I don't have to keep writing these kind of stories, but I feel like with this administration, nothing's gonna change. I really don't see any uh, anything substantial down the pipeline. Just see, let's just look at how they've handled this mayor's fund, right? They can give all that money to the families directly and they're not, they're, they're holding, they're holding the money and they're holding the purse strings as tight as possible and only giving a little bit at a time as they see fit. We have a situation in this city where we have a kind of ideological mindset in city hall and in city government that functions within the logic of neoliberalism in which we believe that we can give a lot of money sometimes billions of dollars when it when it comes to the homeless services uh uh administration to all these motels especially these sleazy motel owners who jack up the price to, of rooms that are not worth 350 dollars a night let alone 80 dollars a night and making a fortune while the families suffer. When in reality, we can fix this problem tomorrow if we wanted to. We can house everybody, the homeless and the families that became homeless because of, of the fires. We can house everybody permanently. But that's not the, the mindset we uh, this city uh, functions in. They function in giving a perpetual amount of money to all these nonprofits and all these uh, 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 hotels and motels, rather, and not doing anything about the fundamental problem where that's at hand. So that's just what I think. Amir Kafaji, thank you again for joining us. Uh, the piece is pregnant, sick, homeless, and afraid. Bronx fire survivors say the city is not doing enough. And again, you can find it at documentedny.com. Thanks a lot, Amir. Thank you, Harry. Appreciate it. F-A-Q. FAQ.NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Artists, and Critics, online at thebrick.house. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and came to you this week from Brooklyn and Jackson Heights, Queens. A special thank you to our guest, Amir Kafaji. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, mixed and edited this episode. Be cool and be kind, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>